You're on the panel on RNZ National. Julia Hartley, Moore, private investigator, and Alan Blackman, chemistry professor, with me this afternoon. Now, Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown announced phase two of the recovery phase today, shifting from emergency response and immediate recovery to the big Auckland cleanup. There are some who have queried whether or not the pace of intensification needs to be stepped back a bit with hard impervious services creating above ground water funnels. Is there adequate stormwater flow capacity built in to deal with this? With us to discuss is Senior Lecturer of Architecture and Planning at the University of Auckland, Timothy Welsh. Kia ora, Timothy. Hi, how are you? Very well. Uh, no, so no one's saying no to intensifying, but, you know, is enough being built in to the design? Yeah, I mean, the issue isn't going forward where we have enough capacity to handle stormwater. It's that we don't have the capacity now. So changing density at right. this point isn't going to have a major effect. Uh, we're really going to need to play catch up on all the building that we've done already to make this more manageable. Yeah, because often, uh, I mean, this um, the, 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 a friend who was flooded quite badly out in, I think, the Point Chief area, you know, pointed toward a new um, development across the road where you had these, you know, it was a large footprint on an entirely concrete pad, and that's it. And you could see that on either side of those units, you know, uh, it just acted as a water funnel. Uh, you know, is there a case to be made that, more green spaces needs to be allowed. I mean, we definitely need more green space to kind of act as a tool to absorb stormwater, but we also need to think about the design of our density. I think we can easily handle more density. Other right. cities have done it well. They get very wet, but it's the tools that we use to handle that, not just paving wholesale big lots and, and having a lot of built-out area, and it's also not building over sensitive locations like wetlands that do absorb a lot of that impact. So that is something to bear in mind when designing for intensification, because looking at the numbers here, uh, Tim, you know, there's some pretty serious planning going on. You've got, uh, I mean, the unity plan allows for the construction of more than 900,000 new homes by 2050, possibly looking at um, over 3 million more homes to be built over that same period uh, if uh, Labour and Nationals' plans for more intensification, um, you know, get up to speed. So it's quite a bit, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I think it's going to be important also to make sure we have an adequate supply of housing and affordable supply Mm. going forward. So we can't just cancel building more housing, but we should take a serious look at where we're putting that housing how our natural systems can act as kind of a tool to hold uh, future storm water. Uh, And then we have the idea to build in areas that have already been built up, so maybe replacing some of that pavement with housing and that housing having its own catchment systems as a way to slow down um, and kind of more filter that water into the system at a slower pace. So we can have all that development. We just have to do it in a smarter way. Okay. Julia? How do you see this? Well, look, I can, I'm just looking at, I mean, it was bad enough here, right? And I've spent a fortune on drainage at this place. And this is a, this is a big property. So I've got a lot of 
ground where it can the water can soak away and a massive amount of drainage whereas my daughter in Ponsonby had her place was she's in a an apartment block and it was just a, a flood i mean they were put to, they were pouring water into the big wheelie bins their rubbish bins and then taking it somewhere else to, so they could get down to the drain to clear the drains Gosh. um mm. so it's it's about look we know more of this is going to happen so I think now this is really showing us it's not going to, this is not just like a one-off and, and we can relax. These things I think are going to continue, you know, these major weather events. And it's a matter of where you build and how you build. Tim? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's been uh, a lot more conscious about the locations that we're building in. Uh, and having the wheelie bins fill up with water is obviously not an ideal solution, but it points <laughs> to a solution of containment at the localized level to give the system we have right now a better chance to hold the stormwater and then slowly release it back into the system over time. Okay, Alan Blackman. Yeah, no, obviously um, I agree with Tim that it's not coping um, at the moment. And, uh, you know, this is sort of evidenced by the fact that um, the East Coast beaches seem to be closed every couple of weeks whenever it rains because they're getting polluted. So, um, and obviously this whole intensification thing, you are taking one house on maybe what was a quarter acre section and you replace it with, I don't know, six, eight units or something like that with the... Uh, concomitant increase in um, dirty water that's coming out of there into old infrastructure. And of course, it's not going to cope. And, you know, that, that Elton John concert that we went to, walking back from Mount Smart, you just saw pretty much all of the houses that were on the low side of the road um, just being inundated with water. It was just flowing down their drives and everything where it should be taken away by the... Um, you know, by the drains and everything, but it it just wasn't. And we we had friends who had water through their home um, to about oh I don't know, sort of a few centimeters deep. But you know, got got the carpet and everything had to be ripped up. And we went around the next day and checked the drains, and they were just absolutely clogged up with mud. Basically, they were they were never going to work. So um, yeah, it, it it is all in the infrastructure, and the infrastructure ain't coping at the moment so god forbid what it's going to be like in you know 10 20 years if this intensification keeps up yeah your response tim yeah and again i you know i i hesitate to blame intensity as the main issue here like i said many other cities cope with intensity and lots of rainfall on a much more regular basis than we do uh, but we have years and years of infrastructure catch-up we need to do to make mm. this more manageable and we're going to be discussing actually second part of this uh, at 4.40, the infrastructure gap, uh, many, many billions of dollars uh, needed. Um, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins said yesterday, uh, Dr. Welsh, that part of building resilience would be looking at where houses and businesses are built. Um, can you foresee some tough conversations coming yeah certainly i think we're not the only ones that are considering where we should be building and whether uh, unfortunately if we need to retreat in some cases we've built in very sensitive areas and we may have to actually think about pulling back in some locations to allow our natural stormwater abatement systems to work as they should and where do you start with that conversation it'll get pretty political pretty fast don't you think tim 
it won't be an easy talk, um, but it's going to be increasingly important as we see more intense and frequent storms coming in the future. All right. So uh, your answer here is that uh, nothing to fear from intensification. It can be done. Uh, it can be done right. Is is there a is there a place top of mind where they actually have done intensification well, and the stormwater um, has managed to actually cope with you know massive inundations? Well, even locally, looking at Hobsonville Point is a good right. example where each house has at least a thousand liter catchment system, uh, which contains a lot of that storm water, and they have culverts built over the top of their rainwater pipes to be able to filter that water and catch it with plants ahead of time, among other things. So we certainly have some examples just in Auckland that, that show us how we could be doing things. Very good. Uh, if anybody from Hobsonville Point is listening, um, be interested to hear uh, what you make of uh, Tim's comments there. Dr. Welsh, kia ora. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's uh, Senior Lecturer in Architecture and Planning at the University of Auckland. And, of course, another aspect of this, uh, isn't it, the three waters we might have an explainer uh, on three waters. It has been talked about in other uh, programs. Very interesting. Uh, so how did you around the panel on this before we go both Aucklanders briefly? Julia, how did you cope? I mean, it was just something quite extraordinary. And we're, st- you know, we're still talking about it, aren't we? How did you cope? Oh, look, we were actually quite lucky. And like I say, the only reason we were, because in the past, um, you know, I did flood here. And my neighbour down the back, poor guy, used to have to get his kayak out every time it rained because my place would drain off into his. But once the big stormwater drains were put in and then we did all this development and put massive drainage under under here, it's been absolutely perfect. I mean, yes, we were sog- soggy, but we weren't flooded by any means like the poor people that, that you know experienced so much worse. Um, so, yeah, we were fortunate. Ellen? Yeah, pretty much the same as Julia, really. Um, in previous times, we've had sort of, ooh, you know, a few centimetres of water downstairs, and so then we put in a decent drain, and um, this time it was just a little bit damp down there, and it should have been so much worse. So we were extraordinarily lucky out in Titarangi, and I guess we're also lucky on being on the right side of the hill in Titarangi. Um, the other side of the hill seemed to get all the slips and everything. So, you know, we're counting our blessings. 18 past four, you're on the panel on RNZ National. Alan Blackman, Julia Hartley Moore with me uh, this afternoon. Keep those guesses coming for the song Whisperer. I'll just say it one more time. A sister killed her baby because she couldn't afford to feed it, and yet we're sending people to the moon. What is the lyric? What's the song? Text me 2101. Health experts are urging the government to expand its free lunch program, Kaora Kakum, and ideally include all schools. A health coalition, Aotearoa, say the cost of the living crisis and floods in Auckland has only added to the pressure. Nearly a thousand schools with 250,000 students were in the scheme this year with us as University of Auckland Research Fellow and Health Coalition Food Expert, Victoria Egley. Victoria, welcome. Kia 
Porter. Thank you for having me. So this is sure to get um, listeners thinking, what do you make of this? Could you see uh, a time where we actually get to near universality with a school lunch program? And what have been the benefits of the Ka'ora Ka'ako Healthy Lunch School program? Tell us. Yeah, so Health Coalition Aotearoa is calling for the government to expand the program to 50% of all schools. Um, at the moment, only 25% of, of schools receive the program. And in my opinion, 50% would be an excellent, an excellent start. All schools would be, would be better, but where Health Coalition is asking for 50%. How big is the gap between the demand of this program and its delivery? Yeah, the gap is huge. I think um, what we're seeing is just incredible benefits to come from the, the program. So going back to kind of your first <laughs> your first comment um, and question, um, there are benefits to child health and education. And we know from research that's been conducted both here in Aotearoa and overseas is that when kids have reliable and universal access to lunch every day, they're less stressed. They're not distracted by hunger. They can concentrate on learning and playing. Teachers report fewer behavioural incidents. Right. Um, and, you know, more than that, school food programs can lead to better social connection because kids, you know, share food and all have the same food. Um, and they get to experience new and different cultural foods together, which leads to better long-term dietary, dietary habits. So when I go out and talk to Kids in schools and their teachers and their principals, what I'm seeing is just that the schools that, that have the program love it and the schools that don't have the program are really hungry for it. They, they really want, want it. All right. So it's just, it's just that fundamental, Julia. It seems that if, if you have a belly full of a, a good food in the morning or indeed at lunch, you know, that concentration improves. The, the teachers notice, um, you know, that, that increased focus and perhaps engagement. Um, mm-hmm. but what, but what, but Julia, what's your take? Oh, no. Look, I think that is so true, isn't it? It's so true. And I think, that's even more valuable than even, you know, giving people more money because this is this is what the money, if anyone was to be given more money and benefits or whatever, it's food is what they need. And we need to take GST off unprocessed um, food like they do in Australia, but we in, in the UK, but we for some reason we don't. So to give kids a good lunch is I think all kids need a good lunch, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do. Okay, it's a bit of a support from Julia there, also <laughs> uh, GST off uh, fruit and veggies. Stay there, uh, uh, Victoria. We'll go to Alan, and you can respond. Sure. Yeah, um, well, I mean, this one's really a no-brainer, isn't it? Who politically is going to vote against kids being given good lunches at school? Um I mean, this is very common in the States, and uh, I don't know whether they have to actually pay for it in the States or whether it just comes as a matter of right. I'm not sure. Um, and again, I can I can nearly remember the whole school milk thing. Um, when they phased that out was basically when I started school. The one question I have about this is that um, it appears to be targeting schools rather than students in need. And I guess my one question is, that we're talking obviously low decile schools here. So does everybody at the school get lunch or is it targeted basically at the students who are the most in need? Yeah. 
Um, so what the research shows is that when it's really important that the school is universally applied so that everybody in school gets lunch. Um, that yeah. means that there's less opportunities for bullying um, and there's also less shame attached to, um, you know, receiving exactly. the school lunch program. Um, yeah, yeah. Just going back to the, you know, at the moment it's the, the 25% of, of schools that have the, the least amount of assets and, and the community is sort of the worst off. But what we're seeing mm-hmm. is an increasing need in mid and high decile schools. So families who traditionally haven't had to worry about putting Kai on the table are starting to worry about that. We know that costs are going up, the cost of living is going up, the cost of fruits and vegetables is at an all-time high. That's a real problem for many families, even families whose kids attend medium and high decile schools. If we expand yep. Yep. the program to to medium and high decile schools, that's going to alleviate some of that financial stress on families, and it will allow them to spend the money they would have spent on on lunch and recess on other things, whether it's uh, yeah. school uniform I, 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 or rising rent. Victoria, I get that within a school. I really understand that you yeah. want to make it universal within that school. But some might say, look, you know, um, valuable funding for children in disadvantage being used to feed children who are not disadvantaged, that doesn't seem right. And I'm sure that many people might go, not quite sure why school lunches should be made as perhaps universal as you think it needs to, could be. HCA Health Coalition Aotearoa is asking it, it, it to be doubled. So at the moment, only 25% yeah. of schools. Um, it could be increased to 50%. And it's important to remember that it's an opt-in program. Got it. So schools are given the option to opt-in. So I think we need to trust schools that they know their communities the best and that the schools that don't necessarily need it won't opt-in. Um, I think another benefit from the program that comes to kids, regardless of just having food, is the benefits that can come from being exposed to different types of food, as well as food from different cultures. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Certainly um, very interesting, Joy. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, You're wonderful. Uh, that is uh, University of Auckland Research Fellow and Health Coalition food expert, Victoria Eagley, making the case, a uh, pretty strong case, uh, some would say, uh, wouldn't you think, uh, for an expansion uh, of this, uh, of a free lunch program because, uh, as we said before, you know, it increases engagement and focus and, uh, you know, generally a good thing to do, isn't it, to have um, kids having uh, full tummies. But to what extent should it be more, a little bit more universal? I'd really like to hear your perspective on that. Text me, uh, 2101. I grew up in America and went to public schools in Kansas. Everyone could get lunch at school for about a dollar fifty, which was up to $2 when my kids started school. Mid-low-income families paid $0.25, cents, and for extra-low-income families, free lunch. There were similar breakfast options, again, for every student. Yeah, a lot of response uh, on that. Thank you. Would you support it? And indeed, actually, did you grow up uh, having uh, lunch at school? 27 past four. Well, I was having a discussion with a colleague who said that she had been reading all the glowing comments online about this series called The Last of Us. It's a post-apocalyptic drama. And she goes and watches it only to find that the series is, in her opinion, terrible. 
wooden acting, really bad storylines, didn't like it. And I thought the same about Succession. I mean, I love Brian Cox, but I thought it was a bit hammy. And I told you earlier what I thought when I first saw this globally popular series. So yeah, it was a, it was a series called Friends. It was huge. In fact, it was it became an icon. It was so massive. I didn't like it. Never could warm to it. I just thought it was just so so hammy. But around the panel, here's one um, shows that everyone loves, but I don't. Happy Valley, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones. Alan Blackman. How could you not like Breaking Bad? Well, never, I, is is it good? Oh, it's chemistry. It can't be. It's got to be good. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, so is there is there an example of a series, Alan, that you never took to, but everyone just oh, loved yes. Absolutely, very much. Seinfeld. Oh. I just don't get it. I love Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's brilliant. I love Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I love Arrested Development. I love Veep. All of those great American comedies. Everyone goes on about Seinfeld. It's not funny. <laughs> Ellen? Sorry. Ellen, I yeah. could give you a hug right now. <laughs> I, could, I could give you a humour hug. I can't see anything funny about Seinfeld. Oh, thank it just, you, it's not fun. It's just not funny. What, 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 what are you and I missing? No, it's not just you. <laughs> Nothing, you obviously. Just... Are you with us, Julia? Oh, 100%. 150% <laughs> am I with you. I mean, just couldn't stand it. Breaking Bad, just the very beginning of it when he's in his underpants in the desert with the gun. I just no. knew straight away this is, this is a, a series for me. That's it. Loved it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I couldn't I, stand. I couldn't stand friends. I didn't know what the big deal was about that. Mind you, I've got to say, I'm not really into American humor that much. Um, I probably gravitate more to British humor. Um, and I was quite surprised that I liked Breaking Bad. I tell you another one I really enjoyed, and that was Friday Night Lights, and that was really American. Well, that was amazing. It was a fantastic. It was fact that you just loved the people. That was amazing. That that comes that stems from a, um, a, a a great piece of sports journalism by a Pulitzer Prize winning author who goes to a small town and decides to stay for one whole year uh, and write about the small town. And that series stems from that book. It is. 10 out of 10. Someone says, I 100% agree about Seinfeld. I cannot stand it. Katie says, I hated Ozark. Horrible characters. Peter Peter says, I agree, Wallace. I thought Friends was contrived and corny. Although someone says, you people today are just nuts. Seinfeld is the best ever. So there we have it.